Does your financial advisor take the time to really listen to you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situation changes? When you work with Edward Jones, they focus on what's important to you. You'll work together and use an established process to create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And they'll partner with you to help your strategy stay on track. Visit edwardjones.com or stop by the office of Todd Nash in Coralville, Jeff Rudolph, or Scott McGill in Iowa City, or or Travis Whitmore in North Liberty. Edward Jones, Making Sense of Investing, member SIPC. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're listening to the Hawkeye Hotspot podcast here on hawkfanatic.com. We appreciate it. I am Rob Howe, joined as always by Scott Docterman from The Athletic, recording this on Thursday, November 11th. Oh, just before 9.30 a.m., happy Veterans Day. Thank you to all the veterans uh, serving now who have served, who will serve. Appreciate that a, a bunch. I know that's uh, Near and dear to your heart, too, Scott. So uh, I'll let you kind of uh, throw your thanks out there as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I've had friends, you know, coll- you know, colleagues, I've had relatives, you know, who have served. I never have, uh, but it's certainly a, a solemn duty. And, and you know, on a, on a little bit of a sad note, this is the first Veterans Day I've had without my grandfather. He was, he went to, he was an artillery sergeant on the front lines in Korea. and he passed about a month ago. So yeah, it's a, a little somber time there. And, but, but that said, we're, we're incredibly proud of him and everybody else. And I hope all of you enjoy your day and I hope, uh, I hope you can enjoy it uh, and, and celebrate with some of the establishments around town that I know give, you know, wonderful discounts on this day and rightly so. So hopefully you get a free meal or close to it and, and, uh, and enjoy the afternoon and the evening tonight. Yeah, without question, deserve well deserved. Um, I know Iowa football will recognize veterans on Saturday. There's a flyover. Um, usually, unfurl the big American flag on the field before the game. Um, I'm sure they'll have uh, some uniforms. Usually, uh, Tiger Hawk with the American flag. I know they've done that in the past. Maybe uh, I heard Kirk say something on his radio show last night that there could be an alternative uniform. On Saturday, he didn't discount that when asked about it. So, uh, look forward to what we can see, what we see on Saturday, what, uh, before what will be a uh, a super important game, Scott. I mean, um, I said it on uh, the Mailbag podcast on TV show that we recorded yesterday. Um, I, I don't like the term "must win," but. Uh, yeah. It's about as close to it as you can get for Iowa. Four, you know, four-team logjam at four and two in the Big Ten West. I Iowa's already lost head-to-head with the two, two of the three teams it's tied with. Uh, if it lost to Minnesota, you can pretty much kiss the good the Big Ten West goodbye. Yeah, there's really no pathway at that point. I mean, you're out of it for sure. 
um, because then Minnesota would own the head-to-head tiebreaker and they, and then they would play, um, you know, Wisconsin at the end. And so you, you really have no pathway and you shouldn't at that point, you right. know, you'd be praying and, and you might as well save your prayers or your karma or whatever for another year when it deserves it. Um, <laughs> it would be incredibly disappointing as well. And I don't want to put any extra pressure, but I don't think I am in saying that this is, not only is it an important game, but it's it's must win for not, salvaging the season may sounds too strong, but I, I think that after such an incredible opening where you're ranked as high as number two yeah. and then to lose twice as, as a top 10 team, but still be respected enough to be in the rankings, I think you want to prove that you're you're deserving of that. And you're playing your oldest rival. You're playing for the, in my opinion, the best trophy, traveling trophy in college football. And you know they hate you. They say it. <laughs> they say it every time they're around you. Um, and you know they want that trophy back in the worst way. And they have championship hopes, too. You're tied with them. So there's everything at stake here in this game. Um, and, then, and then it boils down in the fourth quarter. It's not about the standings. It's not about the trophy. It's not about anything else than – I want to beat your ass. And they're thinking the same thing. So I think in some ways that's what makes it, uh, that's what makes it fun, special, great rivalry. Um, I love this rivalry. There's a lot of sauce in it, probably more juice than a lot of, probably any other one right now, I would say for Iowa, except maybe Penn State. (laughs) Um, But but it may be even including Penn State. So I, you know, because they do recruit head to head way more often. I, I think this is a great matchup, and I, I think there's a lot that you could look forward to. There's some potential to lose, but I think there's also some opportunity to win and win decisively as well. So um, I, I'm excited to watch what, what's going to happen here. Yeah, I wrote my preview this week. You know, you would a lot of times with a, a you know, a quote unquote rivalry where one team has won six in a row and eight of nine, you know, it loses a little bit of juice. I think it speaks to this rivalry that it's still pretty heated, even though it's been one-sided, um, particularly in Iowa City, where Minnesota hasn't won since 1999, I wrote in my preview. Uh, Bill Clinton was president, and uh, SpongeBob debuted that year. So um, that gives you a little <laughs> bit of context to how long, long it's been since that happened. And I, I, don't, I don't know P.J. Fleck. Um, I don't want to speak for him, but I can't think of a game on the schedule for him that he wants to win more than this one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the rivalry game they have not won, and it matters so much to him. I mean, he has in his office, he has a replica of Floyd of Rosedale, and, and Minnesota collectively has the best trophies of any team. Uh, Floyd, the Axe, I think you could go one or two with that, and then some people might say the Jug, because it was really the first traveling trophy there was. So I, I, I love college football history, period. Uh, no matter who it involves. And I think that those are just great. But um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of spice between the Hawkeyes and, and, uh, and PJ Fleck and the Gophers, you know, going back for the Gophers, you know, more than a century, certainly. And I think that he wants to beat Iowa in the worst way. Last year, <laughs> symbolic of the whole damn rivalry was 35 to nothing. He's got his starters in. They want to press and score the last touchdown. 19 seconds left. They're on the Iowa four-yard line against Iowa's twos and threes. Timeout. Well, you know, that pissed, even though it was, it was monstrously cold that day. I mean, it was 
probably below 20 at that point in the, at the evening in a, an empty stadium. Kirk, I'm calling three timeouts straight. <laughs> you know, like Tyler Goodson said, I was sitting on the bench going, man, I got to get in the locker room. Freezing, you know? <laughs> and, Let's uh, do that weather a lot in Georgia. Yeah, right. Chauncey Golston just started laughing, but, you know, I was asking, he just said, you know, you know how Chauncey was. He got a straight picture in and just started laughing. He's like, don't you do you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, called all three. And then afterwards, when he was asked about it, he was just kind of like, you know, all right. Um, I figured, you know, you guys complained about me not using my timeout. So I figured I'd leave the timeouts here and take Floyd with us. And it's like, whoosh, you know, and, you, uh, you know, Black could say whatever he wants. You know, that had to infuriate him. So, hey, I'm all about that. Make it fun. Make it enjoyable. And if they race across the field and hoist that, you know, 98 pounds of, sw- of solid uh, bronze swine, more power to them. But I guarantee I was not going to say, here, make sure you take it with you and don't trip on your way over. I mean, <laughs> it's going to be hardly fought. It's going to be fought very hard before. Yeah, it uh, looks like it's going to be a little chilly uh, on Kinnick Saturday. So typical Big Ten West uh, November weather for these teams, both of whom uh, would prefer to run the football. Uh, Minnesota's been better at it, although they are uh, down to, what, the fourth, fifth team tailback, yeah. uh, a couple of freshmen. And we'll get into that some more. Um, wanted to just kind of go back quickly on the Northwestern game and get some of your thoughts on that, Scott. Um, I would, the way I looked at it and, and what I've kind of talked about this week when, uh, when asked about it is, you know, Iowa just needed a win. And uh, I think it knew that. I think the coaches knew that, um, you know, that game plan, especially in the second half, the offensive game plan could have backfired and bit him in the ass. It's happened before there. It's happened in other games. Uh, but, you know, the defense stepped up and uh, won that game. And uh, that's kind of uh, what we came to expect earlier in the season. And uh, wasn't pretty. Don't get style points. But Iowa really doesn't need style points at this point. It just needed a win. That's exactly right. Um, it got some style points in the first half. And I know we'll go into that, too. But um, this was the type of game that if this was a typical Northwestern team, I think we would be talking about a three-game losing streak. That I think that if we if they had a typical Northwestern defense and, and if they had – a playmaker at quarterback, not Andrew Marty's okay, but he's certainly not Brett Bazinet or <laughs> Peyton Ramsey or Dan Persa or anybody like that. No. I think that there, there would have been some problems, but that said there weren't because they were able, their defense, the defense was able to get three interceptions. Dane Belton was involved in all three of them. He had two picks and, and uh, had a hit on the quarterback that forced the long throw to Jamari Harris that he intercepted um, also knocked away a fourth. Uh, that was would have went right to Jack Kerner. And uh, I mentioned that to Jack the other day. He just kind of laughed. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, but he still knocked it down. He got a pass defense. So I, I overall, you know, late in the game, I thought they got pretty tired on defense. And that was why Northwestern was able to kind of get in, get involved in the game. But but I think if you're complaining about a 12-point effort on defense, then you're really kind of looking in the wrong direction in some ways. Yeah, and uh, obviously the, the, the main storyline from the game, uh, which most of, the, most of us in the media wrote about, was uh, the story that's continued in this week, and that was the change at quarterback. Uh, mm-hmm. Spencer Peach has played the first three series 
uh, after which Iowa punted on each, uh, wasn't moving the football. He did not look right. We, you know, Kirk Ferentz confirmed after the game that he was injured against Wisconsin the week before, uh, had kind of gutted it through practice last week. Um, so I guess looked good enough where they figured he, he was able to play on Saturday. They started him and played him for three series and then made the decision to, to go to Alex Padilla after that. He led uh, a couple touchdown drives uh, right away. Um, I'll get certainly want to hear your uh, feedback on this, Scott, but just me in a nutshell, the thing that impressed me the most about Alex was his preparedness, being able to go in there on the road, Kind of, and he said after the game, he didn't know that he was going to be playing. It, it wasn't like, hey, you're going in in Series 4. Um, we saw against Penn State, you know, when Clifford went down, what, that's, what that backup quarterback situation was like. I think Padilla stepping in there and uh, being calm, collected, uh, on the same page, running the offense, um, that and then his ability to hit receivers in stride, hit receivers to the point where they could make plays after the catch. Those were a couple things that stood out to me. Um, but, and, and I know, you know, this, and, and I think it's important for, for listeners, uh, Northwestern's defense is not good, uh, yeah. particularly against the run. And Iowa's ability to run the football helped Padilla a lot. It wasn't, that wasn't Wisconsin's defense. So, you know, we'll talk about more about this going forward, but what kind of were your, takeaways uh, from watching Padilla with his first real important, uh, actually, uh, you know, significant game action. Yeah. I came away very impressed, uh, even more than I would have expected. If I would have known that, hey, this guy was going to play and you watch for it, you know, maybe that would have changed that. I, I, I was, I just came away just uh, feeling like Iowa finally got some good quarterback play. And I don't mean to downgrade Spencer Petrus by any stretch, but it wasn't it to me. I, I, I was fine with any kind of change, whether that was health related or what, because the offense needed a spark. The offense was stale. It was flat. It was, and, and that was, that's across the board, you know, and, and when you have an offensive line that doesn't really blow people up when you don't have a running game that can really set the tone and tempo, and you don't have a passing game that can really stretch the field or get, you know, many you know, impact plays, then you're kind of just there and, and you're relying on your defense and your special teams to generate points that that's not always a winning strategy as we've seen. So to get spent, to get Padilla in there, my first notice was, they first ran him with a with a backdoor screen tied to uh, tight end Sam Laporta. He, he was one block shy of really breaking it, and, but he got two yards. Then he had uh, an out route to, to Keegan Johnson for 17, and I'm like, okay, this is good. Then, you know, a playoff, and then you know, they had a running play, and then on the fourth play, he went up top with, uh, with Keegan Johnson, and he threw a pass that, damn, Iowa should have been throwing – Three years ago to Noah Fant, two years ago to just, and last year to Brandon Smith, which is let your receiver make a play, a high point pass. And 26 yards completion. He went up over the top of the defensive back in single coverage. And being there, you could see the energy immediately on that sideline and in that offense and in the stadium. Cause as you know, it's a third to a half of the crowd was Iowa fans that it was like, okay, saddle up, we're ready to go. And uh, what I really liked about him was, as you said, he, he 
he's a more accurate quarterback. He does hit receivers more in stride. Um, you know, he he's a runner at two, but he didn't really have he didn't really have to show that. But what I, what Iowa did with him that I think really helped was because of the threat of the run and the fact that almost one third of his passes were play action passes that it really allowed the receivers to kind of move and, and get find some open lanes because he is a shorter quarterback than, than Spencer Petras. But finally, after looking through all of this, what I really liked even more than anything was 75% of his targets were wide receivers. The highest of any game all year long was 64%. So you're looking at the difference between three out of every four passes going towards wide receivers versus you know, two out of three at not even two out of three. And that is a huge difference. Um, you know, when you're looking at it, you know, three to four targets, to tight ends, three to four targets to backs, and then 24 to, to receivers makes the receivers feel value. And I think there was a little bit of unvalued before the year. So to come in cold, essentially, even though it was a wonderful day, beautiful day, but to come in after three series and go 18 of 28 for 172 yards, no major mistakes, had a couple of drops that including one that I think could have went pretty far. I, I could not have been more impressed for a debut. Now the question is full week of practice, full week of first team reps against the defense prepared for you. Now what, what we'll see on Saturday. Yeah. And I, I agree with, with everything Scott said, it was good. That's a good deep dive into uh, what he was able to see from, from Alex, um, from, um, a, you know, just kind of a, a personality standpoint. Um, I, I know a lot, there hasn't been a lot of exposure to Alex, you know, from the fan base getting to see him and, and uh, you know, see interviews with him. Unfortunately, Tuesday, I'm I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll let it go, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had to get him. Yeah, would have been nice maybe yeah. to put him on a Zoom yesterday or something. They, like that. they tried. They were, oh, they were turned down. They were turned down for that one. That was something that the, the Iowa folks tried. To, they asked for a Zoom for with uh, Alex Padilla and the coaching staff decided against it. So, so I stand by my I stand by my frustration. <laughs> <laughs> this, this one is not targeted to the New Year Okay. This yes. one's coaching staff. They, uh, yeah. But, but I, I agree because I had, I was like, okay, well, we're going full force with the Alex Vidia feature this week. Well, we'll wait. Now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And I, I'm usually very sympathetic to the media relations people who often get blamed for decisions that are out of their hands. So, but anyway. Alex Padilla is a really well-grounded kid who, who's, I think, from um, just kind of a, a personality standpoint, I, I don't see him as a kid that's going to be rattled uh, as somebody that, that we saw it last week. But I, as big as this game is this week, I don't think he's going to be overwhelmed by the moment. Um, he's just kind of really grounded. Um, and he's always been that way from the time that, you know, I got to know him in recruiting. Um, and, and sometimes I don't know how people, you know, how much they uh, follow that aspect of it, like what type of prospect the kid was. Uh, but he had an offer from Georgia. He was well, you know, he was well thought of in recruiting circles, four-star kid um, coming out of the Colorado area. Um, 
I, I just, I, I, he may, Minnesota may throw some things at him that force him to make mistakes, but I don't think it's going to be because he's overwhelmed by the moment. Sure. And I think that the, the unfair thing is to judge him on, and this happens too, way too often, but judge him on each and every pass. Right. You know, that if he throws an interception, it happens. If he overthrows a receiver, that happens too. Or if he underthrows one, you know, if he makes the wrong read, if he hits a check down and there's a guy open down the field, all those things happen through the course of the game. And especially to a kid just making his first start. Um, I think you judge him more based on his total performance. And just like the other day, he made a lot of really nice throws, but they were, it was the collective that mattered. And, and I agree with you on it from a personality standpoint that he is um, there, there. He just has a quiet confidence about him. And uh, you look at him, you know, try to, we have so, you know such a history of, personalities at quarterback especially because all of you know we've all been here so long <laughs> and then also there's kind of like this history with Ferentz that it makes it easy to make all these little uh, comparisons and there's really not one like him um, per se I mean Spencer's kind of an outgoing talkative type uh, Nate was really quiet and reserved but nervous about talking um Spent, uh, CJ was just kind of a guy's guy, but not really, I don't know. I mean, Alex has a real focus to him and, and a, you know, and, 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 a, and a confidence that's obvious, but, you know, he's not also, he's, he's a kind of a guy of fewer words, let's say, than Spencer, who I really like. I, I'm not going to disparage Spencer at all, but I, I think he's got a different personality and I think people gravitate towards him. And just talking to Arlen Bruce the other day, Keegan Johnson on Saturday night and uh, um, Tyler Goodson, they could not be more excited for this move. I mean, it's just, it really, I think if anything, it, he will allow the playmakers to make more plays. It might lead to a mistake or two more, but at this point you kind of needed to push the envelope a little bit offensively. So where do you think we're at here? Um, this is going to be speculation on, uh, on our parts. Um, and, and, and the question I've been asked this week as well, and I'm sure you have uh, too, Scott, is, you know, if, if Petrus is healthy, is he the guy starting this game? Um, there's really no way of us knowing that, and nobody's going to tell us one way or the other on that. My sense is he would be if they started him last week, but they would still get Padilla reps and work him in. I don't know if that's a great situation playing two quarterbacks. I'm, I'm that more often than not does not work. Um, I just, it's funny because we talked about this before the season, the potential for there to be a quarterback quote unquote controversy, however you want to frame it. But we felt like if Spencer comes out and struggles against Indiana and Iowa state, then maybe we have something to talk about. Well, that didn't happen. Um, you know, it wasn't – he certainly didn't light the world on fire, but he was winning football games. They won the first six games. I didn't see it happening at this point in the season, but we there's no way of predicting an injury. So, to me, it's going to be fascinating how this thing unfolds, and that's kind of what I wrote about on Saturday. There's a there's a there's a average chance, better than average chance, that whoever is the number two, whoever shakes out of the rest of the season – as the number two quarterback among these two guys, 
may look to move on after the season. And that's what the coaching staff has to figure out and massage right now. There's a chance they keep both guys, and that's the best of both worlds. But we've seen with the transfer portal that that's less likely in this day and age of college football. So this is really, I mean, there's only, you know, three games left in the season, Scott. But this is really fast. Well, we have a bowl game too, but this is really a fascinating you're going to be a fascinating storyline moving forward. And it's not totally out of potential for them to be playing in Indianapolis either. Right. I mean, they're still True. tied for first place in the West. So uh, how this works out the next three weeks. And if you, I think conventional wisdom says that Purdue's going to lose to Ohio state. Right. And then maybe the Gophers beat the Badgers. I don't, I certainly do not think either Northwestern or Nebraska will. Um, so there's an opportunity there, but even so, even if they, that doesn't happen and Wisconsin goes to Indy and everybody's happy there, um, I think you've you've got to roll with the hot hand, and I think you also have to give Padilla a chance to see what you got. And this is an organic way of making it happen, and it's the best way to make it happen because now you get an opportunity. Hey, he's hurt. He hasn't practiced now. Okay. He comes back to practice, but he's not really ready yet. We want to give his shoulder rest. It's, it's an easy way for Kirk to just make that transition rather than pulling his quarterback, turn it into a performance-based issue. Now it's an injury. It's a health-based issue. So I think right now it's Padilla's job to lose. If he goes out and plays well, you're not turning that over. You're not going back no matter what. But if he goes out, and this is the this is the question: What if he has a Petrus type performance? Win or lose, um, eleven for twenty, one hundred and forty eight yards, a touchdown, two, you know, an interception, just kind of like, oh yeah, it's pretty much what we just saw. So then what? That's where the question for me it gets murky. But then to follow that, all that up, when you hit January. I think you should tell every single quarterback on your roster and Carson may when he gets here, whenever that is summer. Yeah. He's everyone. In, road, so. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I would tell him this, but he's going to be the scout team guy. next. <laughs> uh, all four of you have an opportunity to win the job. We will give you guys equal reps throughout the spring. We'll kind of at the end of spring, we'll kind of dis- decipher it and cut it and, and tell you where you stand. But this is going to be a full fledged competition. Um, you know, this may cost us a little bit as far as consistency in the spring, but you got to get this figured out because um, I don't know. I'm sure you have heard this too. I've heard nothing but just obscene praise about Joey Labus that he has just yep. done miracles practically against the, the starting defense as the scout team quarterback. If he's your best guy, you got to play him next year. I don't care who is all there. Deuce Hogan really hasn't had much of an opportunity. He's now the number two this week, or at least he was. I don't know if, you know, if Saturday rolls around and something happens, if they throw Petrus in there instead of Hogan, I don't know. But I'd give him that same opportunity um, because, you know, look, look where they're all from. You know, you got Spencer from California. You got Alex from Colorado. You got Deuce from Texas. You got Joey from Ohio. They're coming to Iowa not because they're Hawk fans. They're coming to play football. And you should give them an opportunity if that position is not set by. Um, it's one thing if you have C.J. Beathard in there, but they don't. Right. So I think I think it's you open it up either way. Now that may mean, hey, Alex played really well for us. We expect him to win the job. Spencer leaves, or hey, Spencer played really well. Alex played okay. Whatever. 
but that, that's how I would approach it from January through late May is they're all on the same line. Let them all work their way around. Yeah. And then it'll be up to them to determine whether or not they're buying that, yeah. you know, because I wrote about this in the column too. Guys kind of know where they stand for the most part. They, they see what's going on around them. They know what the competition looks like. They kind of know where they stand. They can kind of tell from, uh, you know, how the coaches react and, and how their teammates react, kind of where they stand. Um, and there's a big difference between maybe moving on in January and then waiting till May. You know, you lose if, – if you, if, if you go to somewhere else in January, you actually – you know, you get a spring ball somewhere else as opposed to waiting and getting there, you know, during summer conditioning and then camp. So um, definitely a story that's just going to continue here. And, I, and like you, Scott, I think the coaches would like it to be crystal clear. They would like, you know, either – they don't want Padilla to fall on his flat on his face – but if he really struggles, they know they made the right choice in having Petrus as the number one guy up to this point. If Padilla takes off, that again, that it's an easier decision for them. The worst case, the nightmare scenario for them is what you described, is if Padilla looks the same in the offense, maybe a little bit different. He does, you know, he's got a little bit different skill set, but basically, um, you know, the, the results are the same. Then what do you do? Then, you know, you know, you don't win the West. Uh, people are still coming after Brian Ferentz. The offense, play calling, uh, all that stuff still stays in place, still is in the conversation, is still part of the narrative. Then I think it gets kind of muddy because um, mm -hmm. this doesn't right, – at least right now, it doesn't feel like 2008 and it doesn't feel like 2014. This one feels different because there's an injury involved. So – that to me, like I said earlier, it's it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, but like you said, like you said, the quarterback controversies or competitions, whatever you want to call it, of the past, it's it's just completely different. I think when you look at after 2014, going into 15, you had Rudolph and Beathard. Both players played at a higher level than what we're seeing right now. Yep. You know, or we have seen. You know, I think. I mean, and it's proven. I mean, Rudolph had been in the NFL for four or five years. Beathard's still in the NFL. Um, they're both very good players. Um, so they, their performance had either – had Jake Rudock been the quarterback last year, Iowa goes 8-0, goes to Indianapolis, and then who knows? I mean, they might have had a, a nice game there too. Um, mm -hmm. But that said, it didn't happen. But I also look back at 08 as far as it was – Jake Christensen played worse than Spencer Petras did. And so that really made the, the questions obvious. And and Ricky Stanzi wasn't all that good either. <laughs> I mean, no. He was more in the, the Spencer Petras last year mold. Um, you know, but Ricky, of course, is such a charismatic, has such a charismatic personality and won some big games with some heroics that Spencer hasn't really done other than maybe the Penn State game this year. So that's why he really sticks out. I, I just, I think this is a unique situation. And then to top it off, those other guys weren't close at all. You know, they were not friends. Um, you know, Rudock and Beathard were not friends. Uh, I, I never got the idea that Christensen and, and Stanzi were friends either. They were, you know, colleagues necessarily. They worked together, but not really friendly or friends. These guys were like best buds, Padilla and, and Petra. So I don't know that it would be healthy for them 
personally, you know, because they are such good friends to have to, if they get into after the postseason, however that shakes out, to have to go into a full-fledged mono-a-mono competition for the number one job where they're both at an even level. I mean, this year was different because Spencer, it was like running a 400-meter race. Spencer already got 150 meters on everybody else. Uh, next year, if it's a full four, it might take some uh, – it might be difficult for both guys. And I think would especially Spencer simply because he, you know, started 17 straight games before this. Yeah, and COVID kind of impacted how yeah. – you know, evaluations went last year. There was no spring. The summer was a mess. The season was canceled. Then you had to get everybody ready, you know, in a quick fashion last fall. Um, and, and I did get a sense in the spring and then in the summer that Alex had closed the gap on Spencer. I think Kirk was pretty open about that. But my last and our last kind of um, – view of the competition was at kids day in August. And I felt like Spencer was the guy, but I could see Alex kind of gaining that ground, but he still was really inconsistent. And that was one practice, but still I was like, nah, I'm not sure he's there. He's obviously, and again, we talk, we talk about this on this podcast all the time, Scott. I think people forget that in college football and high school football, and even in the pros, but more in high school, there's development time. And, and this, the two months, two and a half, three months that Alex has had this fall, that's big. I mean, that's a lot of time to get better. Um, and he has, he, he definitely looks better. And another aspect, another component of it is the coaches are va- evaluating practice. Talk about practice. Um, <laughs> but sometimes guys just play better in games. They, they don't yeah. look as good in practice. And maybe that's the case here. I don't know. But again, I'm just, I'm fascinated by this whole thing. And obviously I, I want, I hope the best for all, you know, Scott and I get to know these guys a little bit and I, I want what's best for all these guys. I hope it works out for all these guys, whether it's here or somewhere else. Um, but I'm just fascinated by this dynamic because you know, 23 years, we just haven't been here very often. This is a very unusual situation for Kirk Ferentz's, for the Kirk Ferentz Hawkins. It is. And that's the, it's the weird thing because for every coach who maybe puts together a knee jerk decision, uh, take your pick, Steve Spurrier or, you know, Yankee quarterbacks, throwing quarterbacks in and out and uh, what have you. Kirk is the exact opposite. And I think and there are times when you're like, dude, you need to make a change. This isn't working. And, and I know there was one point where he was very close last year um, and it didn't work. And, and then it was actually the Illinois game. And, uh, you know, he had a really bad first quarter. They were down 14 to nothing on the road. And then Spencer came back and had one of his best three-quarter performances afterwards. And so it was like, okay, I'm stuck with him. Now, and I, so I, I'm fascinated by this as well. You know, and in evaluating the two guys from this, the couple opportunities in the spring and uh, in fall, Spencer seemed to have more command over the offense. There was no question. You know, he knew the offense. He knew where to put guys. He seemed to know where to put the ball. A lot of the situations. You know, he had a he has a bigger arm certainly. Then you look at what Alex Padilla brings in. He's obviously quicker and faster. No question about that. Um, I liked 
his spiral and his accuracy. And Arlen Bruce brought it up the other day that the ball just has different spin coming out of their hands. And I, you know, I said, well, part of that is release point. You know, when you got a six, five guy versus a six, one guy, well, I goes, I can't really put a pin on it. Well, the ball comes out and um, I like where he puts it. I like his ball placement. And I, and I really like the opportunities he gives us wide receivers. I mean, the 24 out of the 32 targets, across the board for the, for the game, but we're at wide receivers and most of those obviously were, um, were Padilla. So let your receivers make plays. That's what they want more than anything else in the world. They don't want to have to run a four yard out and get tackled or get taken out of bounds. They want to make plays. And, and when I saw that high point pass to Keegan Johnson for 26 yards, you know, I had flashbacks going, man, if they could have only done that with no offense and Brandon Smith, this it might be in a better spot, but but even so, um, I like that. We'll see how he, if he can do the same with the Gophers who are now prepared for him. The Illini, which get, gets another week to study him since they're off this week, and then Nebraska with who knows what they're going to do. They're probably not going to do anything, so you know, except get ready to go to the off season and talk about winning the last down. <laughs> yeah, trying to fill spots on the coaching staff. Um, yeah. for the guys that got thrown under the bus. Um, yeah. yeah, you mentioned Noah Fan. I, I <laughs> mentioned this on the public. He's got the best P.J. Fleck, Minnesota, Iowa moment. The row in the boat with the football was yeah. that, to me, that's the, to me, that's one of those lasting memories. I love that. I, I, I <laughs> that was, that was classic. Well, I'm sure that could happen again this week, too. <laughs> Oh, but um, yeah, and we talked about this last week and and you made the point again, Scott, you know, when we were talking about the Iowa offense struggling, we talked about giving the ball to your playmakers and letting them make plays, have trust in your players. And I saw more of that Saturday. Again, that's against a, a defense that isn't as strong as Purdue and Wisconsin, but and Minnesota's got a good defense this year. They've got grad transfers that came in that have kind of supplemented uh, what was a real weakness last year. So they're better, really good against the run. Um, but hopefully Iowa, Brian Ferentz, Kirk Ferentz saw last week what some of these guys can do. Arlen Bruce, Keegan Johnson. We know Tyrone Tracy, uh, Tyler Goodson. What these guys, they've got playmates. Get the ball in their hands. Let them make plays. I hope we see that this week against Minnesota. I hope it's not an ultra-conservative game plan. And I know when there's a lot on the line, the Ferences tend to go conservative. And, and I hope they, they, they go for it this week, is guess what I'm saying. I'm not expecting that, but that's kind of what I hope. It's interesting because we've seen this before, where there are certain games – and Brian Ferentz has mentioned it, where their game plan is, hey, we, we're not sure that 21, 24 points is going to be enough. So they do things, they call things more aggressively, and those are the games that fans absolutely love. I mean, first of all, Ohio State. Right. <laughs> it was like, you don't know how many points you're going to need, so you just better keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Minnesota was the same way, at least in the first half, two years ago. That, you know, when you look and you see two NFL receivers and Tyler Johnson and Rashad Bateman and and you see a quarterback playing at that level, plus a really good offensive line, you knew that they were capable of doing some things. So you figured, 
we got to take some shots. And they did. And they looked good doing it, especially early on. And Tyler Goodson, of course, that was his breakout performance. But, you know, among the things I, I chart are the, the jet sweeps. And they really used that last week. And, you know, now they're at like 4.3 yards per carry when they have a jet sweep. And that sounds eh, marginal. I mean, it is quite a bit higher than the 3.1 that they're at right now across the board. But the other part is, I don't like doing this, but when you remove that botched handoff from Charlie Jones mm-hmm. in that game, that he would have gotten a lot of yards, but I'm just saying you remove it all together. Then it's six yards of carry on jet sweeps. That's something you really got to look at because that is something in my eyes that, okay, th- this is a weapon. It, it does things to the defense. And when you got – you know, some, some of their linebackers, you know, Jack Gibbons has never seen Iowa before. He's from Abilene Christian. He's playing really well, I think. But Mario Sari Morin, you know, last year, I think he got thrown out. Maybe it was a targeting call. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, you got hurt or got thrown out. Um, you know, so now there's a history there. But, but I'm just saying that you're going to force them to look at things that they're maybe either not prepared for or they're just – Physically, you can be good on a play, better than a game. So I, I think that's something that they've got to really concentrate on. And if you can throw in legitimate play action, attack the middle or down the field with your receivers, and throw in once in a while some jet sweeps, maybe even jet sweep motion on every single possession once, you're going to be able to run the football better than you have been in the past. I, I just believe that. And so I think if they can incorporate all of that, then, the, then it's a balanced offense, and then you can attack Minnesota, and then you can let your defense win it for you. You can, you can score enough points to where you don't feel like you need to get in this row-the-boat race <laughs> and, and, then, uh, and then hope for something. No, you can, you can win the game. with your, your offense can pace it, and then your defense can just close the door. Yeah, you know, we, we talked about the jet sweep. You know, Arlen Bruce makes a play against Northwestern on that play. Yes. Keegan Johnson does it the week before. One of the only good positive offensive plays against Wisconsin was his putting the ball in his hands and letting him make people miss, and he did. Um, and it's not only the playmakers. You, you look at what, you know, the Arlen Bruce play at Northwestern, you're allowing somebody like Monty Potabom to do what he does well. And that's block, clear the way. Continue to do that. I just think at this point in the season, Keegan Johnson and Arlen Bruce have shown they've earned trust. They, they should be trusted now. You can trust Tyrone Tracy. You can trust Sam Laporte. You can trust Tyler Goodson. You can trust Charlie Jones and Nico Regain. There should be a ton of trust on this offense. And I know you're dealing with a quarterback that's making his first start, but help him by letting him get the ball in his playmaker's hands, especially, again, I, um, with an offensive line that just – I don't know this week, Scott. With Mason Richmond's out, um, Cody Ince certainly still isn't right. I mean, that's the one thing that, that concerns me this week is if um, Minnesota gets aggressive here and, and, and Iowa plays conservative and plays right into its hands. It sure does because they do have two pretty good defensive linemen. Boye Mafe, to me, is going to be an NFL guy. He's, he's good. I mean, six sacks, nine TFLs. 
just a big physical presence that's 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 going to be a problem no matter what. He's going to make plays. Just you know, there are times when you just accept that fact. You don't know when. <laughs> you hope right. that it's it's a first and ten run that it's for a one yard gain, but you know, and not a sack on third down. But he's going to make plays. Thomas Rush is pretty good too, but uh, their secondary isn't that good. It's young. It's inexperienced still. Um, you know, when you're you're talking like even turnover margin, Iowa has you know plus twelve. They're plus one. So there's some there's some balance there that, that Iowa can throw on them. But as you said, if they blitz, if they attack Iowa's weaknesses on the defense on the offensive line, and you got a quarterback that's not prepared for it, then some ways you know what 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 you got to do is anticipate what they're going to do to disrupt your game. So you got to do something different. And you now have the quarterback that can roll out and run or roll out, hit guys in stride so they can make plays um, off bootlegs. That's what you do. That's what how you attack there. Because then they're over-aggressive, going after Tyler Goodson, and your quarterback's rolling around, and boom, or Sam Laporta, over the top, you've got your wide receiver. That's what keeps them off balance, and that's what keeps your offense in charge. Yeah, because it's going to be, I mean, maybe it's not, but just statistically and on a watch Minnesota against Illinois um, and some other times this year, it's just, it, it's just a much better run, run defense than, than Northwestern. And Northwestern was the worst and, and kind of showed that it was the worst on Saturday. Minnesota's not going to let Iowa run them. They're going to want Iowa to throw the ball. So if you know that, take advantage of it. If they're giving it to you, take it. Don't be conservative. I just – I don't think this is the week to do that. No question. And, you know, Joe Rossi's done an amazing job with that defense because last year, I mean, you know, we saw it against Iowa. We saw it against everybody. I mean, they allowed like 6.5 yards per carry. I mean, it was gross yeah, across the board, all, yep. every game. And uh, and this year it's it's 3.4. I mean, that's – that is quite a jump, you know. And, and, and I thought, well, hell, if they even get to four, that's a win. They get to that flow. Uh, they allow about 103 yards per game. That's that's a that's really good numbers. That's just five yards more than Iowa. So uh, this is a pretty decent run defense. And as you said, and and a lot of that can be you know schematic. It's the fact that they have a lot more guys up front. They did hit the tra transfer portal hard to at least have guys who can rotate. Uh, I think Gibbons has been a really big help for them in the transfer portal. Uh, but that said, they're they're not. They're good. It's not Wisconsin good, and it's uh, you know nobody is frankly. Right? More Purdue. I would I would compare them more to Purdue. I think than Wisconsin or Penn State. Yeah, or Iowa. You know, yeah, uh, Iowa. I, Iowa's better than they are too. Yeah. Uh, but that but that said, you know they're they're good enough, and we've seen good enough even give Iowa a lot of problems. They're not Iowa State good. It, it's just uh, so you just have to keep them off balance. And now they can alter the offense a little bit more because, again, about a third of their passes were play action last week. Use play action, use rollouts, because it cuts the field in half for a quarterback who, who's shown he's capable of throwing the ball in the run. And, hey, nobody's open. He can tuck it and get four, five, six, ten yards versus, you know, that's not – I think it goes without saying that's not one of Spencer's best gifts in life. He, he's given a lot, but but fleet of foot was not one of them. And it'll be interesting, too, because this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum, Scott. And we know kind of, as you alluded to earlier, 
the complementary football component is how much do we need to score to beat the team that we're playing? Minnesota's offense is not good right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Altman Bell's been hurt. I think he mm-hmm. left last week's game with an injury, but they expect him to play this week. Uh, you know, no Mo Ibrahim. They're, they're down. They've got freshman running backs. And, and P.J. Fleck mentioned that this week because they gave up six or seven sacks to Illinois, I think it was. And he kind of alluded to it being part pass pro from these young running backs, not being able to pick. And we know Bielema loves to blitz and and throw things defensively. And I think Iowa has an opportunity here too, to do some things to mess with the younger running backs that Minnesota has. Um, And they just haven't been much of a threat in the passing game, Minnesota. So that, Again, I wonder how this plays into it and how Iowa's offensive game plan is instituted or, you know, what, what the plan is based on not thinking Minnesota, like Northwestern last week, is going to roll up 21, 24 points. No, I, I think in this case, if you're Iowa, you go 4-3 most of the game because Justin Jacobs has proven he's, he's as every good as a starter as there is. Um, because you're worried more about the run. They're, they need to establish. They know what they're. They know what they're going up against too. They know that Iowa is a, is a really good team. It's at home. They have a one in Iowa City in 22 years. That you know this is a game they really want to win, and and they're going to have to establish the line of scrimmage. Now, a few teams have been able to do that, not consistently, but a few have. So they're they're really going to. Uh, you know, focus on that because they want to take pressure off their passing attack. Well, you know, Ottman Bell, it certainly isn't healthy. He's capable, but he's also not as good as Bateman was no. or, or as uh, Tyler Johnson before him. I mean, he's, he's a, probably a camp guy in, in the next level. He's a guy that maybe can make a team, but, but he's not a draft pick. And, and I think, uh, you know, they got some guys they like. Dylan Wright's decent. Uh, Brown Stevens is pretty good. He's actually got high numbers, big play guy. Uh, but, but Tanner Morgan's having another subpar season. Uh, you know, he's thrown six touchdowns and seven interceptions. And some days he looks okay and decent. And, uh, you know, like first half against Nebraska. And then then like that Bowling Green game. And then last week he was just dreadful. And, he, and if you get pressure on him, I could see a four or five interception game for Iowa's defense. And then, yeah, in the second half, you can climb into a turtle shell because you might be up 28 to nothing. You know, I mean, you, you know, you were there, what, 2005, where it seemed like it was going to be an even game senior day at Kinnick Stadium that had Hinkle catches four touchdowns mm-hmm. and they score like on their first 25 possessions, it felt like. And, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that's the result. I'm not, it's not one I would predict, but I'll say it's an opportunity that it was aggressive on both sides of the line of scrimmage. I think they can put this game to pasture by mid second quarter. Yeah. And um, Minnesota's RPO game obviously isn't as effective when you don't have the threat of passing. You know, you don't have Bateman or Johnson down there as a threat going deep against, you know, True freshman Raleigh Moss and true freshman Julius Brents, when you take shots at them, you know, time after time. Uh, That said, Tanner Morgan is good. Uh, You know, at the mesh, he he sells it well when he's playing well. Um, But he's just been so inconsistent this year that 
I think, you know, in talking to, to Joe Evans and John Wagner on Tuesday, you know, when I asked them about, you know, the keys against that, they're basically like, hey, we're stopping the run. We're, we're you know, that's number one. They're not running the ball on us in RPO. Um, and that's a good way to approach it. That's, yeah. that's the right way, especially against what, you know, as, as Scott said, Minnesota doesn't have a lot of threats in the passing. Hmm. And there are ways to orchestrate, you know, that we don't really think about, but to orchestrate pass rush if it's not there, which is, first of all, defensive linemen, they probably will to gap a little more um, and because they're, they're going to need to against these guys. And, and it should be stop the run because that's just really it. Well, that's when you're, you throw your linebackers into the mix with blitzes or your, or your Dane Belton off the edge. And that's when you can disrupt it or generate enough pressure to where there's uncertainty with the football. And, and, uh, and, and when you do that, sometimes with the blitz, um, you can have like a John Wagner still try to take up two blockers so you can have a, a blitzer free. And, uh, and all of them are really prolific at it. I think Seth Benson's really good. Certainly Jack Campbell is and, and Jacobs would be. And, you know, and, and last week they were actually, they, they switched some things up. They went three, three, five for a little while. And I thought that was fascinating for Iowa. Um, but no, I, uh, I, I think there are a lot of opportunities in this game. If, if he plays well, first of all, I'd be surprised if he plays really well. He completes less than 60% in that offense. I think two, two years ago, he's like 73% or something crazy like that. You know, six touchdowns, seven interceptions, stop the run, stop the run. It's third and eight. No, nobody's looking at run for RPO. And if you get it, more power to you. You're not going to do it again. Um, and then they tee off. And I think I think there's some potential there for Iowa. I I would I could be wrong, and I know against uh, what was it two weeks ago maybe we had uh, Wisconsin, and I, I thought it would be a positive game for Wisconsin, and then the tweets started rolling in when it wasn't. <laughs> but I think that Iowa has the potential to have a pretty positive game here. Yeah, and I think they can be aggressive defensively um, with the lack of you know the deep ball threat and. As, as I talked about earlier, um, I thought Illinois did a good job of isolating those freshman backs on linebackers and, and blitzes. And I think, I, like Scott said, Iowa can do the same thing. If you've got a freshman back trying to block Jack Campbell, except <laughs> Benson, fence, I like Iowa's chances in that matchup. Yeah, Bucky Irving, you know, a guy <laughs> I like recruited from the Chicagoland area. They really like him, but uh, it gets Jack Campbell. Good luck. You know, I mean, it's it's like, yeah, I'm going to throw a tight end against Lawrence Taylor. Good luck. You know, you can try. <laughs> you hope he gets in the way accidentally. <laughs> you know, just like that, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think Iowa's defense has an opportunity for a pretty big game here. I do think that what Iowa has to do offensively is um, it, it, you know, I don't know about. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think this is the game you want to be too awful conservative with. I think this is a game where you attack down the field. Now, this is totally hypothetical, and this could get shoved in my ear on Saturday if it, if it goes the other direction. But if you get a big lead in the second half and you're up 28 to nothing, do you shut it down or do you keep going? Because I keep going. I mean, this is one of your rivals. This is a rival you don't like personally as well as, you know, institutionally. I think you make it 49 to nothing if you can, but that's me. 
I don't think they do. That's that's not the DNA of of Kirk Ferentz. He he'll he'll play the 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 clock field position game, and that's another aspect. I think Minnesota leads the the conference in time of possession, so it shortens the game. Uh, another uh, you're looking for you know things beyond uh, offense defense. You look at special teams. Minnesota's kicker has struggled. I think he's yeah. missed seven of 17 field goal attempts. Their punter's pretty good. They're okay in the return game, but Iowa should be better in special teams as well. Um, so that factors all obviously factors into what Iowa does offensively and defensively if they have an advantage on, uh, advantage on special teams. But we thought that last week and Iowa gives up a block punt. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh that's pretty wild. By the way, uh, just got some breaking news. Josiah Miaman's in the transfer portal. No. Not surprising. No. Um, he got passed by Lachey, uh, who's younger yeah. than him, and who, well, I don't know what else is going on behind that. But uh, he played a little bit earlier in this year when Lachey was hurt. So a little surprising, but guys want to play. And that I think, Scott, that kind of, you know, it illustrates what we were talking about earlier with the quarterbacks. Yeah, it's even more of it's even more pronounced there when most oftentimes, unless you've got two completely different skill sets, it's one guy that plays. Yeah, right. I mean, to be number three in this team and this offense, that's really hard. That's really hard. And he really hasn't played any special teams. He only really got snaps in one game this year. Uh, It's understandable because this isn't, you know, what I only get really interested in is why now yeah. why do you feel the need to quit and and at this point in the year and and uh you know and, and maybe just put itself the portal now but i i don't think that's i think you think you just leave the team when you're doing that i also know uh isaiah bruce has left the team and we had Kayvon matthews a few um a few uh weeks ago so you know that you know that kind of attrition though happened and it's it's not surprising. It's just kind of unfortunate because I thought Josiah Miaman had some opportunities. I think he could be a, still a pretty good player somewhere. But I, I guess if anybody, I was more surprised with uh, Elijah Yelvert. <laughs> you know, he's not the one that's left. But maybe who knows? We don't we're not practice. Maybe uh, maybe things have happened there. And you know, Miaman had some issues beforehand. So yeah, and you don't know. I mean personality clashes, incidents, we, we, we don't know, you know, maybe we get, maybe we get some, uh, some feedback on that down the road, but at this yeah. point um, you just let, look at it. And, you know, I think in most of these instances, Scott, it's playing time. That, that's why guys jet. Yeah, exactly. You know, you see it and you think I should be playing. I'm better than that guy. And you should probably, you know, you need to think that way anyway, as a player, but at this point, it's, that's that seems to be pretty obvious. And he did have, a, you know, an off-the-field issue in the spring that really hurt him and set him back and, you know, put him behind the other two and or certainly put him behind number two. And and so now he's, uh, you know, looking for another opportunity somewhere. And, and uh, you know, Iowa's got a couple more tight ends coming in, and who knows if they're going to, you know, depending on – I mean, Laporte is going to have a decision to make at the end of this year because he's um, – you know, most draft boards have him as a third, fourth, fifth round guy. You know, can he go get up to be a first rounder or is he kind of reached where he's going to be in, in, in any kind of draft? So, um, you know, depending on his situation, they may need to go out and 
see if uh, you know, hey, Thomas Fedoni, are you really happy over there with everybody? Come over here, we'll we'll turn you into a first rounder. Good to see Thomas get back on the field too. I know it's I think it was last week he's back kind of yeah. in practicing after the knee injury. And your your colleague Jesse Temple with a little breaking news in the Big Ten West, Scott. Uh, Paul Chris says running back Chesma Lucy is out for the season. Wow, that's that's too bad for the Badgers, you know. And, and when we, we were talking about styles of matchups, and we're right now, you know, obviously we just spent a lot of time over Iowa, Minnesota. I think Minnesota actually matches up better with Wisconsin than, than Iowa did, certainly. And and so, you know, without Chaz Malucci, if they stop Braylon Allen, the, Wisconsin's still very vulnerable as a, as a passing attack. They had one good quarter against Iowa. The second half was a disaster for them, but they didn't need to worry about it. They, they were one for six. They just didn't make any mistakes. So that's really a win, obviously, for Paul Chris. So you have that. And, um, the dropouts are going to happen in Nebraska. I think Jojo Doman is already, you know, he's fantastic. He's already going to opt out. And I think you're going to see more players do that, especially when they go to Madison next week and get annihilated. They'll say, you know what, this isn't worth it. I, I want to play in the NFL. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not expecting a, a well-oiled machine, a stable situation when we get to Lincoln. I think, uh, I don't know. I get it. I get what they're doing with Scott Frost. Um, basically, they're saving themselves a shitload of money uh, yeah. if, if he doesn't come through next year. Um, and we have evidence that that's probably not going to happen. Uh, at least the buyout's cut in half and you save the million uh, in salary as well. So I get that. Um, but I think you just prolong uh, your agony and, and fall another season into the abyss uh, by uh, keeping him around. But They've, uh, you know, whatever happens over there happens. And, uh, you know, they, they've been kind of a wreck before and given Iowa trouble. So not a layup. Yeah. I mean, I would say if they were stable, that that would be a real problem, you know, but, you know, because uh, I do think, you know, they have played everybody tough. Yeah. All seven of their losses have been my single points. And four out of the eight opponents have been come against top eight teams. So when you have Michigan, Michigan State, Oklahoma, and Ohio State, and uh, Ohio State was the biggest loss by, by nine points, and that was a competitive game all the way through, you're looking at this team going, you know, they may, they may go, man, we're not going to a bowl, but we want to win that trophy. And But when this happens, and next week, I cannot think of a worse team if I was in that situation to want to play than, than Wisconsin at all. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just their style of football, you've got to be committed to win. Yeah. Because as it's painful, physically painful, to go against 315 pounds just coming around on a pin and pull. Wow. You know, and if you're not committed, you're going to get, you know, I, I used this analogy a little while ago. You're a squirrel under a Zamboni. Yeah. And, and then here we are. And their offense is a disaster. They only kept one offensive assistant. You know, they, they fired them all now. How do you do that? I, Isn't that Scott Frost's area of expertise? Yeah. I mean, the, the, all the guys have been with him before. He played at Nebraska with two of the guys. He brought three of them with him from UCF. And you know, the other guy was with him even at Northern Iowa when he was there in the, the mid-2000s as an assistant. So, you know, I, I, I understand one part of this, that you don't want to have your – 
this is a huge important recruiting week. And they've already are kind of on the tipping point with some recruits that you can probably, but can't you go, all right, we're, you don't hit the road. Don't worry about that. But at the end of the season, the day after the Iowa game, just clean out your desk or do it even before that if you want to. I would keep them around at least, you know, everybody's a pro. They understand the situation. They knew that things were going to happen. They're not going to say, well, screw this. We're going to make sure we fumble five times. You know, I just, I, I, I just don't get it because they're going to be looking for jobs too. So to get, let them go, you know, just let them do their on-field duties and that's it. I, I think this is a really a bad message to send. And, and this is the disconnect we know for the most part, not entirely, but and fans certainly don't get is that the players are so close to those position of coaches for the most part that they then they'll shut this down. They'll say, I, I don't have anything to play for. I don't, you know, I, I'm close to the quarterback coach. I'm close to the receivers coach. That's my guy. I, you know, he recruited me. He's the one who's been there in my meetings for four years. I've called after workouts and I've talked to him. And now he's gone. He just got thrown away like a piece of trash. Screw this place. And then you got fans going, yay, it's about time. And you're like, hey, I'm done. You know, I'm tapping out. And and that could be mentally, it could be physically, it could be both, you know, or it could just be, you know what, I don't care. You know, and in the fourth quarter, they're not going to be as committed to beating an Iowa or Wisconsin as they would have if everybody was still there and they're still fighting hand in hand and arm in arm. Yeah. And as we know in this this business, a lot of it's the public perception and what Nebraska did was trying to appease Everybody, the alumni, the fan base, you know, Trev Alberts is trying to show, hey, we're, we're doing something here, um, you know, in terms of financially and we're making moves here. We're doing something. We're addressing this this way and trying to make everybody happy. And that's sometimes, man, that can really blow up in your face. Um, we kind of it's kind of a year behind what we saw at Michigan, Scott, with 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 Harbaugh. And now. This is, an, you know, I guess we're getting into Big Ten storylines here, which is fine. We don't talk about that a lot of here. But big week for Michigan, going to Penn State and for see how the Wolverines finish out because if they stumble again against Penn State and Ohio State, the narrative's the same that it's been with Harvard. Yeah. Then even though they've been decent, you look at the teams, who have they beaten this year? Wisconsin? Yeah. When I mean, Wisconsin, Wisconsin wasn't right. Right. I mean – Let's face it, that game was just I, – I don't, I don't like to say the games are aberrations, but that was kind of an aberration. That was, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Wisconsin lost by four points to Penn State. They were leading Notre Dame in the fourth period and then just, you know, self-destructed with a lot of interceptions and stuff. And, and they had a lot of problems. With that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you all right, man? Coffee down the road. <laughs> I had that the other day. I know. Exactly. Yeah, sorry about that. Go ahead. <laughs> no, if if Michigan's nine and three, and they lose, and they get boat raced again by Ohio State, and they lose, doesn't matter the score to Penn State. I would be surprised if they kept Harbaugh because it's the, again, as you said, they kept the same old narrative, nine and three. As we know, at the end of the season, the momentum it really sways the off season, and if you're you lose. To Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State, you beat Wisconsin at a bad point, but none of the other teams were any good. Indiana certainly has been a disappointment, and, and uh, then yeah, it might be tough. And and then the Nebraska parallel is 
you got two prodigal sons returning to lead them to the promised land and neither one has really been able to do it. Michigan's record has been okay. I mean, they're just slightly behind Iowa and Penn State um, for third place since he got there. But, but the reality is that Michigan, their history dictates that it's not about 10 win seasons. Iowa is, but there it's about, you got to beat Ohio State and go to the Rose Bowl or win the championship. And if you can't do it, it's a failure. And, you know, maybe that's outdated, but I don't think it is. I think the reality is they should beat their rival consistently, and they haven't done that. And, and Nebraska, it's a shell of itself. I mean, it's the, it's the only team officially eliminated from the postseason at this point. That's that's an embarrassment. And they've got to get better, and I'm not sure this does it. I, I, I mean, because I think – in all of those close games, the reason why they've lost is because of uh, the coaches. It's because of the disciplines, the fundamentals, it's the lack thereof of game situations. It's not statistically they're better than just about every team in the league and, and both sides of the ball, you know, and the, they're losing these close games. Why? Because they make a ton of mistakes. So. Um, and it's interesting too, for, you know, I think, there are some parallels between Michigan and Iowa, whereas, you know, Michigan has to show it can win the East division. That's really for Iowa too, has had some really good seasons since 2015 and built up. But how is this season going to be viewed? Even if it's 10 and two, which is really good at Iowa. It's really good anyway, but falling short of winning the West, there's, there's a hole there. there there's, there's a void still even at 10 and two and that to me that's kind of the the parallel i would make between michigan and i mm -hmm. i think it gets thrown into that second tier of really good years under the kirk ferentz era and I, I mean i think they should ultimately if they if they went out and they're 10 and two and and then they go to the citrus bowl or whatever it should be viewed as a how do i say this a good year, you know, a successful year. You'll probably be close to the top 10 at that point. And if you win it and you're 11 and two, I mean, that's as, almost as good as you've ever had. It's just, but the problem is you want the hardware. So it gets lumped in with 2003, which was a number 18, but they didn't have any hardware and they went to the Outback Bowl and beat Florida and they were 10 and three. It's like the, out, the holiday bowl year and other years like that, where it's, they're good. You know, and you end up in the top 15, top 10 and win 10 games. That's that's not bad. But, man, you just you want some sort of a trophy. And even if that's just the West, you know, tr division trophy you, and you want to go to Indianapolis, that's that's what. And, and when you rank second in the country, that's really, you know, that's not putting um, some unreachable um, goal on the chart. I mean, it, it's there now. I'll say this, that with, uh, you know, <laughs> The, the running back out for for, uh, for Wisconsin, and they do not have a very good passing attack at all. And, oh, and they had very, some attrition at running back, too, during the – during before the season. During, they lost – they don't have a lot of depth at that position. Now they're down to the 17-year-old Braylon Allen, who looks the part, believe me. I think he's John Clay part two. He's a good player. And they run the ball effectively, but – Let's let's look at it for what it is. They, with one guy that inexperienced in the final game of the season at Minneapolis against a team that hates them just as much as they hate Iowa, um, 
they're they're one dimensional anyway. Now they're going against the strength of the defense uh, for Minnesota, which is run stopping the run. They can't throw. Now, of course, they'll they you know Minnesota can't do much either. But if it's ten to ten in the fourth quarter, it's anybody's ball game. One mistake can get you beat. And so that's why normally I would say, okay, you know, that, yeah, this is an uphill climb for Iowa to get to Indianapolis. But I think it's actually not unrealistic to, to think that this could happen. I don't think Northwestern or Nebraska stands a chance against the Badgers, but I think Minnesota does. And uh, I think Purdue will lose this week to Ohio State. And if Iowa can win, it doesn't matter the score, but I mean, they're going to, they're going to get good efforts, good shots by Minnesota, by by Illinois, and who knows with Nebraska. If they can win those three, and and then, hey, going into that final game, Minnesota says, man, we still hate Iowa, but we can knock Wisconsin out of the, out of the championship game. Why not? You know, then, then maybe you go. Then, then the season looks a lot different in my eyes. If you're 10 and 2 and you're going to Indy and you won the trophy and you're playing uh, – Ohio State, even if you lose, then then you have hardware that you can say, hey, this you reached at least one destination, at least one goal. And then if you win that, it's, I mean, outright, it's the first league title since uh, 85. A lot to play for here uh, the last three weeks. We're in November, and this is the way you want it. It's uh, tied up. Uh, Four teams tied up at the top of the Big Ten West, so we'll see how this all shakes out in the next few weeks. Um, before we get out of here, Scott, I know you were at Carver on Tuesday for the men's, women's basketball doubleheader as the season tipped off. Um, we talked before we started recording that uh, it's it's difficult to kind of get into basketball mode yet with, you know, we spent the first, you know, hour and ten minutes talking about the importance of what's being uh, what's to be decided for football. And it's just, yeah. there's the so, it's such a long winner for, for basketball. And we'll have a lot of time to talk about this moving forward. Um, but uh, the late start at nine o'clock, but both teams got wins. Um, what did you learn about it, about that, those games, other than the competition wasn't really good. Caitlin <laughs> <laughs> Clark is everything you want to be in more um, shooting it from everywhere on the floor, just, tips the court if that's it's probably not as apt as it is in football but I mean just she walks out there not only is she the best player everybody knows it including her opponents they can't do anything against her you know she got an early second foul which kind of prevented her from really running up some figures in the second quarter or first quarter or second quarter so uh men's basketball should go to quarters too by the way yeah right it's hard it's hard to remember that sometimes like oh yeah (laughs) um men's uh, Keegan Murray really looked the part the other day. Um, you you want if if you know we we talked about him as or, and other people have mentioned him as a potential first round draft pick, potential All American candidate. First game, eh, opponent, but he was eight of ten from the field. <laughs> he had twenty four points. You know he uh, three of four from from three point range. Uh, it just you know six uh, seven rebounds. You know and and just Wow, he really looked amazing, I thought, at times. And I like Jordan Bohannon in that role. I mean, six three-pointers, 18 points. That's the best role for him. And, and if he needs to move the ball, he can, obviously. Um, but 
that was that was quite an effort for him in 17 minutes. So, you know, and then I I watched a couple of times where Connor McCaffrey went down hard, and you're like, oh boy, what's you know, you don't get hurt. That that's because he's. I think he's probably got the potential to be the sixth man of the year in the Big Ten if Iowa has a decent year. So um, that's a really smart move by Fran. It's a really uh, unselfish move, I think, by Connor McCaffrey because I think he can help the team better at coming off the bench. While his brother, who's a little, who's obviously a, a more explosive scorer and, and taller and, and quicker and stuff, you know, it, it helps to get him in the game. So I, I came away. You know, it's hard to say I was impressed because it was, you know, 106 to 73 against a really bad team. But I think it, at least – I think they looked what I – you would hope that they would look like in a game like that, that they looked efficient, they scored. Um, Fran got on them a few times, but by and large it was everything you could expect for a by November game. Yep, and we got some more of those coming up Friday night. Uh Missouri, Kansas City, or they did they just go by Kansas City now? Did they? they yeah, I got these schools that want to. Yeah. Missouri State did that, right? Used to be what Southwest Missouri. Southwest. Yeah, that was. I was. I actually lived there when that happened, and um, the pro. The the fun part of that was that um, the school that actually in the town I worked in, St. Joseph, was. Was at that point was Missouri Western State College, and <laughs> so was um, and there was that one and there was uh, Central Missouri State College, and they wanted to become universities, and but the the regents and or whatever the educational system in the southwest part of the state near Springfield was like no way not unless we get a name change, so they had to do this okay you can be universities you'll be Missouri state and yeah, uh, UMKC, you know, the ruse, you know, now they're going as Kansas city and it's confusing because, you know, these teams are, you know, they're, they're low, low, low level. <laughs> are they the kangaroos? Yeah. They're the kangaroos. That's a good, that's a good mascot. I'll give them that. Yeah. Yeah. There's some interesting mascots in that part of the world. Uh, you know, the Griffins, that was Missouri, Missouri Western, Mo West. Um, there's, you know, the Bearcats, the Ichabods, Washburn, <laughs> um, Pittsburgh State Gorillas. Um, <laughs> oh, and Truman State also. It used to be Northeast Missouri State. They, they wanted to change their name to Truman State um, at that point, too. So <laughs> that's not that far. That's uh, Jeff Porter's area. Yep, sure is. And uh, Mason Miller, uh, Iowa City Regina. Brad is starts for them. Good, good Division II program. Uh, but the men will play host to Kansas City on Friday night at 7. Um, if you're in town for football, hop over there. You know, after last year with the COVID, not being able to go to games, hop in there and support the Hawks tonight. Uh, again, this is being recorded on November 11th, Thursday. The women play host to um, – who do they play host to? New Hampshire? I think it's New Hampshire. Oh, New Hampshire's the other day, right? Yeah, who is tonight? I can't remember, but it's at 6.30, and it's another kind of uh, – shouldn't be a competitive – Samford, that's it. I didn't even have to look it up. It, came, it popped into my head. That's a good sign that I can – my memory's not completely shot. So, Samford. Fred not Stanford, Samford. Fred Sanford and uh, Elizabeth Sanford. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, wrestling will kick off here soon. 
uh, I don't know. You say, what do you say for wrestling? Tip off, kick off. Uh, I don't know what, what you would say. First shake. <laughs> yeah, for shake. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the winter sports are kicking in here. We've got the overlap um, Tuesday or uh, Saturday, 2.30 p.m. Central Time, Big Ten Network, uh, Iowa, Minnesota, Battle for Floyd, a lot on the line. Looking forward to that. Hope everybody has a safe weekend over there and enjoys it. And uh, Scott and I will uh, talk to you next week on the Hotspot Podcast. We'll review that and then, uh, or yes, we'll review that and then preview uh, the homecoming of sorts for the new Illinois head football coach. So that'll be an interesting storyline next year. We'll dive in or next week and we'll dive into that a little bit. So, her thing, you know, he was on. Hey, here's a trivia question. Not only was, uh, you know, last Iowa uh, one o'clock kickoff game was in 2000. Brett Bielema was on the sidelines for that as an Iowa assistant. Yep, 1 p.m. 1 p.m. kick for the uh, uh, on FS1 for the Iowa Illinois game. Um, before we get out of here, Scott, um, I know you've got uh, the story that you posted today. I haven't had a chance to read it yet on the 81 Rose Bowl Hawkeyes. What you know, talk about that a little bit, and then what else you got on uh, on the athletic this week for Hawkeye fans to read. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of an exhaustive process and read, but um, you know we do this series called Throwback Thursdays, and so I did one a few a month ago or so on Iowa Notre Dame nineteen twenty one. Well, this one, you know, it is the fortieth anniversary of the Rose Bowl team, and they're honored this weekend um, in um, in Kinnick, and Andre Tippett will get you know honored for his induction in the College Football Hall of Fame. But uh, so that they have a reunion and scheduled. Well, to think about everything, I, I really put it in context that this was the best day in Kinnick Stadium history. You know, there have been greater games, certainly, um, greater, better teams, but the best day because you have the confluence of 19 consecutive non-winning seasons as the background. You have the coach, Hayden Fry, who's really pushing this team forward. And this collection of, new guys and holdovers and assistant coaches that meshed that put this team, Hey, we're going to a bowl game. And then that night before they think they're going to the Liberty bowl. And it's like, okay, but we still have a chance at an outside chance of the Rose bowl. So on uh, Kinnick that Saturday, you had the Ohio state Michigan game kicking off at 1120 and the Iowa game kicking off at one. So people brought in a ton of radios, a ton of, there were TVs in the stadium and they were watching the Ohio State game. And, and, and I know you can't imagine Kirk ever doing this, but Hayden would go over during stops in the action to a guy in the stands, hey, what's the score of that Ohio State Michigan? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he would ask, and by the mid-second quarter, Father Bob, was sitting there with, with Bump Elliott. And uh, well, even before that, when Art Schleister scores the touchdown to put Ohio State ahead, um, Iowa was on the field at that point. And they're like, holy, you know, what, what's going on? Why is everybody so excited? And uh, that was, it was in, like Dan McCarty's like, shit, we always get third down stops. Why are they so excited? <laughs> well, it was because Art Schleister scored to put Ohio State ahead with less than three minutes to go. And then Gordy Bohannon was telling me that you know, he used to have the Bohannon cannon and he, you'd get under center, they'd stand up, then he'd back up and everybody just, the roar was deafening. And he was like, 
you know, well, we always, you know, I know this is exciting and all, but <laughs> that was because Ohio <laughs> State had won, 640 left. And uh, Father Bob with Bump Elliott there, he, he just said, well, when do you want me to announce it? Say it now. And that's when the stadium went berserk that Ohio State had won. If Iowa wins this game, they go to the Rose Bowl. And then they uh, they won. And then I talked to like Bud Supel's son, uh, Ted, and he talked about how uh, the, the bringing the roses to Kinnick and and they decided to do that. And, and his dad was only like five, four or five years into that business. And so they delivered all these roses to Kinnick Stadium and, and his mom took him to the press box. His dad and some friends took him to the locker room. And then by the end of the game, they're throwing roses from the press box onto the field and, and they're ev everywhere. And, you know, talking to Bob Stoops, he's like, I saw the picture of me and my, my brother holding the rose. It was wonderful. And, and then the funniest part, you know, Dan McCarney and, and some of the guys that talked to like Mark Bortz and Pat Dean were, were psychos. And uh, <laughs> they all, you know, party so hard. Uh, but then they went and go out and uh, they found a dive bar in Iowa City called the Rosebud. And everybody's like, let's go to the Rosebud. So <laughs> they went to this bar and they basically took it over. They let just, you know, the, everybody in and open mic open bar it was just crazy but just the best day because people were crying they were so excited can you imagine 20 straight years of not going to a bowl not even having a winning record and then voila you're going to the rose bowl it's such an innocent time and you know talking to john campbell you know they they wired up kcr or the kcrg wired up the stadium so they could make sure they could go live which was really difficult and at that era and, and just just the pure joy that is experienced in an era we'll never get that again not like that so um you know the fact that they got crushed in the rose bowl is kind of irrelevant to compare to the the fact that they won a share to tie for the big 10 and got to go to the rose bowl and after all those years of getting kicked and, and to, to win it it was just you know it was an elation unlike any other so i was happy to document that it took me forever to write it but I'm glad it, that's over, and, and and I'm glad that those that the people who come back will will be able to see it, you know, going into this weekend. Yeah, definitely check that out. I'm going to do that. Hayden, some of obviously Hayden's no longer with us, but his family will be here representing him on Saturday. That'll be a that'll be a special moment because mm -hmm. you know you think about um, all the Hawkeye fans through the last forty plus years, they don't know what the '70s were like. You know, mm -hmm. they, they don't know what it's like to not have winning football. And Hayden and that 81 team kind of set the stage of what we know now for the last, you know, half century almost. No question. I grew up in the state, but my first memory of anything Iowa related was in 1981, was when they beat um, Nebraska. And I remember my dad telling me uh, that they did it. And it didn't really resonate with me at that time. I was, I was just about to be eight years old, but then I remember some of the other games because I was kind of a young sports nut at the time and learned how to multiply by sevens by watching football. <laughs> and, but I remember the Rose Bowl vivid. I remember laying on the floor at my grandfather's house. Everybody got Rose Bowl t-shirts for Christmas. And, and it was just, you know, I'll never forget, uh, you know, it was just in a paper and my dad was telling me, You'll never believe what they got to do for for Christmas this year. They got to go swim in the ocean, and yeah. I, I even 
48 years old now to remember hearing about that at that time, you know, just it still sticks with me and it sounds so cool. And, and of course, and some, you know, didn't really elaborate too much. A lot of the stories were, yeah, they had a pretty good time in California. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why they weren't real, didn't play real well, but, uh, you know. <laughs> kind of parallels to the 2002 yes, Orange Bowl team where they Absolutely. kind of, uh, Kind of enjoyed the celebration a little. It was an extended celebration that probably cost them in the bowl. Yeah. What was it, 51 days or something for that team before yeah. the Orange Bowl, you know? And you got a team that had performed, you know, I mean, their season ended November 16th anyway. And then they go that long till past January 1st. And they'd had, you know, four or five years of really bad football. I mean, or mediocre to low-level football that – yeah, it's un, it's understandable to go that long, basically seven weeks <laughs> of yeah, without yeah. games, and then this one just the adulation, and then you know Gordy Bohannon, who is a is a lot like Jordan in a lot of ways, and you know he's from Pasadena, and so he was able to, you know, he had a lot of friends there, and there there were a lot of there were a lot of fun nights out out in California, you know, with him and his friends, so. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the other ones did too. So, but anyway, that that's that part's just a footnote. The story, of course, is that this team kind of came out of nowhere. Um, the, you know, the the sad sack underdogs, you know, got to go to the Rose Bowl, and and you know, Bob Stoops makes a big hit on the first play of the game, pops the ball straight up. Andre Tippett catches it. You know, two guys who go into the Hall of Fame this year. You know, so just it was a fun story to write. I, I hope people get a chance to give it a read. Yeah, definitely check that out. It'll take some of you folks down memory lane, and, and it's a piece of history for those that didn't experience. It gives you an insight into uh, a, a, an important time, an important era of Iowa football. So check that out. Check all of Scott's work out at The Athletic. Um, that'll do it for this episode of the Hawkeye Hotspot podcast They're on hawkfanatic.com. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week and weekend, everybody. And Scott and I will be back to talk to you next week. Say goodbye, Scott. Goodbye, Scott.